Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap's special series on America's business comeback. Today is Wednesday, May 26th. Amazon is buying up MGM Studios, gas prices are down from a week ago, and we're focused on how the U.S. government worked to save small businesses. As the U.S. economy was staring into that pandemic abyss in March 2020, Congress passed a $2.2 trillion stimulus bill called the CARES Act. Within it was something called the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP, which was aimed directly at helping small businesses keep their workers on payrolls. It was stood up and launched in just a matter of weeks by the U.S. Small Business Administration, but it relied on private banks, big and small, to work with small businesses on getting their applications processed in exchange for a small fee from the SBA. Now, there were lots of criticisms of PPP, initial tech glitches, banks giving priority to existing customers, concerns that minority-owned businesses were being left behind, and the fact that the initial program very quickly ran out of money. But in retrospect, it was one of the most important bipartisan accomplishments of 2020 because it legitimately did save millions of small business jobs and a lot of small businesses themselves. But don't let me tell you, here are some small business owners we've interviewed for this series talking about what PPP meant to them. First, Dana Frank, CEO of First Avenue in Minneapolis, who you'll hear more from later on in the show. What wasn't the impact? I mean, it saved jobs. It saved the business in a lot of regards. It saved venues from being decrepit. It was absolutely life-sustaining. Here's Frank Olivieri from Pat's Steaks in Philadelphia. We were always at $15 an hour, so we were way ahead of the curve. So it allowed me to keep everybody who still wanted to be an employee there and take care of them just as well as we did before, if not better. And Jeff Hamilton from Kelly's at the Village in Allen, Texas. So what we did for our staff is we gave them all a full two weeks pay when we got it. So even though we have servers that only make two thirteen an hour, we went back and took a look at what they made in gratuity on average. And we paid them that just to help them get, get back on their feet uh, quicker. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper on how PPP was created, its challenges, and its legacy with former U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. But first, this. We're joined now by former Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. Mr. Secretary, can, can you start by taking us back in time a bit and walk us through the first time you heard the concept of what would become PPP? In early March, it was clear that COVID was really going to be devastating on the U.S. economy, including the president's decision to shut down both European travel into the U.S. and, and ultimately shut down effectively the, the U.S. economy. So at the time, we kind of used our emergency powers with the Federal Reserve. And I moved up to the Senate office building and basically lived at the Senate office building nonstop in, in a big conference room next to the vice president's office and started having conversations on a bipartisan basis with the Republicans and, and the Democrats. And the, the groups broke out into a couple of different areas. And one of them was the SBA committee. And that's when we started having conversations with the committee about the PPP. Do you remember what the original idea was to help American small business kind of as part of what would become this larger COVID package? I remember going up to a lunch at the Senate and saying we could have 25 percent unemployment and people thought I was crazy. And it was merely math. I said 50 percent of the businesses 
in the United States are small businesses. And if half of them go out of business for whatever reason, uh, that's, it's just simply the math. We were very concerned about small businesses and how they were going to be hit as part of this. We started talking about loans and what programs the SBA had for loans. And one of the things that was clear to us on a bipartisan basis, these companies needed grants. They didn't need loans. So these were called paycheck protection you know, loans in essence. But the way they were structured is if you used the money properly, they'd be completely forgiven. So it was really just a mechanism for us quickly to get money out using the SBA programs. It seemed that every day you and Nancy Pelosi were having some sort of negotiation. I'm curious, particularly vis-a-vis PPP, it, it, was there kind of a moment that captured that dynamic? Well, I mean, there were there were four different pieces of legislation. And by the time we got one done, it kind of blurred into the next one. I mean, n- now we refer to them as all cares. But the first one was the family first, which Speaker Pelosi and I negotiated directly The second one was the CARES Act, where I negotiated with both Senator Schumer and Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell and Speaker Pelosi. It was a a constant negotiation with all of them. That was ultimately signed by the president on, on March 27th. There's no question in my view, it was a very scary time. And had we not passed the CARES Act, I, I think we would have had a great depression, not a great recession. PPP gets put into effect incredibly fast, really just a matter of weeks. How confident were you that it could actually be pulled off? Well, I, I had to be confident. So, you know, we, we, we were managing at Treasury multiple programs at this point. We had the IRS, which was sending out direct payments, whether it was checks or debit cards or wires. We had the airline industry, which was going to go bankrupt, that we had payroll support loans and, and, and big loans. And we had the PPP. And, and I remember saying to people both at the Treasury and SBA and publicly, we can't wait eight weeks to get this money out. These businesses need the money now. If we looked at kind of speed versus perfection, I said, we got to go with speed and we'll fix it over time. And matter of fact, you know, the night before we rolled out the program, we were rewriting all the regulations. I remember we were on the phone with all the big banks and taking numbers. And and then when we rolled it out, despite the fact that we had spent a lot of time on the technology, not a surprise, so many people pinged the system at first, the technology crashed. And, uh, you know, there's no question the program had a lot of problems quickly, but the fact that it ran out of money so quickly just showed how much, you know, people needed this help. Were you frustrated with some of the banks and the way they handled the early days of PPP? I mean, let me just say we were pleased and we were frustrated at the same time. And in certain cases, it was different people. And in certain cases, it was the same people. I would say overall, you know, uh, all of the banks, and it wasn't just the big banks, it was the, the medium-sized banks and small banks as well, put an enormous amount of resources into getting this thing up and running. And I mean, I remember the big banks literally took people off of trading floors and other areas to, to help out with this. So there's no question the response was terrific. There's also no question, you know, we were frustrated. So I think a lot of the banks ended up prioritizing their own customers over other customers. And the reason why they did that, quite frankly, is there were there were BSA requirements, Bank Secrecy Act, 
and regulatory know your customer, KYC. So the reality of it is, it was just a lot easier for the big banks to process their own clients first. That was something that got fixed over time. As part of that, underrepresented minority-owned businesses seemed, at least anecdotally, to have a particularly difficult time getting loans. How were you tracking that, and how do you think that got resolved? So we had a, uh, a big outreach at Treasury to what were called CDFIs, the Community Development Institutions, where Treasury had longstanding relations. And we did try to prioritize those. We had to expedite the application process between ourselves and SBA. So it was hard. In the second piece of legislation that we proposed and, and we worked with Congress on, there was specifically a $30 billion set aside for small institutions. And that, that, that's something that we were, we were quite pleased about. So there's no question that over time it got better and easier for the smaller institutions. Axios is a company that applied for, received a PPP loan, is one of those companies that decided to give it back. Do you think it was a failure of design, a failure of messaging, or just a failure of people to understand what was really happening if a company like ours was able to apply and legitimately qualify? Let me just put this in perspective. So first of all, normally, you know, you would take months writing legislation like this. And while you were writing it, you would get technical expertise from SBA and from Treasury. We worked round the clock, you know, probably over a course of a week or so in helping. This was the Senate who was leading this negotiations, write it. So one of the things was, you know, there was this famous uh, certification in the questionnaire for need. And, you know, I remember we had a lot of discussions about this on a bipartisan basis. People said, look, we're, we're closing down the economy. Every, everybody's going to need this. Let's not write it too tight. Now, when we ended up actually having it come out, I think there were businesses that looked at the law and said, we qualify. You know, I would have thought there was some obligation that businesses said, look, you know, there's not going to be endless amounts of money. If I'm a really wealthy business and I can survive, you know, and keep workers on, whether I'm a public company or whether I'm a sports franchise, we never expected that all those companies would do it. Some of the public companies in response said, hey, hey look, you know, we have fiduciaries and shareholders, and, and if we don't have this, we're going to lay people off. So it was, it, was, it was pretty complicated. But as you know, you know, I came out publicly, as did President Trump at the time, and you know, trying to give a bunch of companies to give back money because we ran out of money very quickly. The first $349 billion, which was passed into law on March 27th, we then on April 16th, we ran out of money. On April 24th, there was the extension of additional money passed, which was another $310 billion. You know, we had no way in the beginning of really knowing how many people would take these loans quickly. Did you want that extension to happen faster? You would have to think there were people who lost their jobs in, in that interim period. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, we, we knew when we saw the rate of loans that were going out the door. I mean, they went out the door much, much faster than we ever expected. And we could model we were going to run out of money. And even before we ran out of money, you know, I was on the phone with leadership on both sides and saying, well, let's not make this a partisan exercise. This is one of the pieces of the legislation that had enormous bipartisan support. We wanted to just pass the PPP extension alone as it is. 
The Democrats didn't want to do that. We ultimately had to add in, you know, some health care money and other things into the extension. But I, in hindsight, you know, wanted to get more money on April 16th. Now, the good news, it was only, you know, it was only eight days, but those were a long eight days for a lot of people. How do you gauge the impact that PPP ultimately had on the U.S. economy? You know, there, there's different economists who come out with different numbers. And let me just say, you know, in normal times, economic modeling is a great science. In this type of situation where you literally shut down the economy uh, and, and you have a combination of unemployment insurance in this, I, I think these things are, are very, very hard to model. There were 4.7 million loans, uh, you know, over 5,400 lenders. I think this saved tens of millions of jobs. I know there's various degrees out there, but I, I can tell you, small businesses had a really difficult time surviving. And, you know, I, I'd get messages from those small businesses. This was the lifeline that saved them. When you think of your four years running Treasury and, and, and rank what you view as your accomplishments while you were doing it, where's PPP in that? I'm really most proud of the fact that in the middle of this crisis, we passed two pieces of legislation in the Senate, 96 to zero and 100 to zero. And I'm really proud that when things were really, really difficult, people on both sides of the aisle came together. I see the CARES Act is a significant part of what was my greatest achievement. Within it, there were lots of different programs. The PPP was one of the most important. But, you know, I would just say, I, I think we saved the airlines industry. I think we saved many, many different areas. The checks and direct deposits really helped people who were struggling at the time. And, and by the way, you know, the money that we got for things like Project Warp Speed, you know, the government funded seven or eight of these things in manufacturing early on. So all of this really helped us restore the economy. Secretary Mnuchin, final question for you. Hopefully no Treasury Secretary in our lifetime has to face what, what you faced. But what would be your advice to some future Treasury Secretary who is potentially facing another massive disruption to the U.S. economy? Well, I was in constant communications with people like Secretary Paulson, who uh, had experienced the financial crisis. So I learned from his experience. One of the most important things is being able to work with both Republicans and Democrats, whichever party you're in, because when we have a crisis like this, everybody has to come together, all sides of government. This, in my time, was you know one of the greatest examples of Washington working and coming together and avoiding a great depression, which would have been just staggering not only to the United States, but the global economy. Stephen Mnuchin, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Welcome back. For this week's series of special episodes, we're ending with quick conversations with iconic American small businesses. Today, that business is First Avenue, the legendary 50-year-old music club in downtown Minneapolis, where Prince was known to regularly take the stage. First Avenue has since opened several other locations in the Twin Cities and was instrumental in something called the Save Our Stages Act, which was a pandemic bailout plan for live events venues that we discussed on a prior recap episode with Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar. First Avenue's experience during the pandemic also included wrestling with the fallout for Minneapolis after the murder of George Floyd. Here's my conversation with First Avenue CEO Dana Frank. We're joined now by Dana Frank, CEO of First Avenue Productions. 
So Dana, let's start here. Is is there one anecdote or story that kind of captures First Avenue's pandemic experience? On the eve of the mandated closures that came down, at least in Minnesota, on Friday, March 13th, we were preparing for our 50th anniversary. We're exceptionally proud of being one of the oldest independently owned and operated venues in the country. We feel like making it to that point was like such a huge occasion. We had spent 18 months or so planning this year-long celebration, and we had to cancel all of that with basically three or four hours notice. So is it fair to say that during the pandemic, First Avenue was essentially as a company shut? You know, I'll never forget the first time I heard the term social distancing. I think I saw a tweet about it or something. And just that comprehension of like, oh, wait, if this is what's needed to combat the virus, we can't operate. You know, our entire business model is about putting a lot of people into a small space and giving them unbelievable experiences, the best night of their life. So if we can't have that, if people have to distance, we can't make our business work. What role did First Avenue play in the Twin Cities community that it struggled to play over the past year and a half? It is kind of the home, creative home of the Twin Cities music community. We really pride ourselves on being an ethical organization and values-driven and really supporting our community by uplifting new artists and giving them a stage and a microphone. And at the same time, you know, being in Minneapolis during the last year, was especially, you know, brought a challenging year, made it even more challenging, revealed a lot of equity issues, a lot of deep-seated systemic injustices. You know, at the same time, we were dealing and coping with the mandated closures and just the economic and emotional ramifications of that. Our city was also dealing with so economic and social ramifications of a whole other level. I mean, our we have we have about five rooms at this point. Um, one of our smaller venues, the Turf Club, was effectively burned. Um, you know, we spent the last year kind of rebuilding that and so fortunate to be able to have insurance to be able to even rebuild. Um, you know, we'll never forget, you know, sleeping in the club for those three or four days at the end of May last year, clutching a fire extinguisher. So when I think about reopening, it's not just the economic reopening. It's also like, how do we open as a more equitable organization? How do we put First Avenue to work to best serve the community and try to break down some of these, you know, historic and systemic injustices? How do we make it work as best as we possibly can for our employees, for our artists, for our entire community? So those are some of the the issues that we're dealing with. How far along would you say First Avenue is in its recovery right now? Just like we shut down with three hours notice, it's almost like we have to reopen with three hours notice. So, you know, in Minnesota, the governor has said we can reopen May 28th um, at full capacity. We are going to wait a minute uh, until, you know, the touring bands start going on on the road again. You know, because our industry, we can't just reopen on a week or two weeks notice. We need three to six months. What do you think will be permanently changed about either First Avenue or the music business based on what we've had over the past 18 months? We very quickly uh, formed the National Independent Venue Association. You know, a a few of us really recognized that this was going to be a long-term cash flow crisis. And as small independent businesses, we had no access to capital. We also had the ticket refunds. So all of the shows we had booked, they all canceled. So some of the major tours, they postponed, but our shows canceled. It's like all of your debt being called at the exact same time that you have no opportunity to make revenue and no access to credit. And so it really became an industry-wide crisis. And we recognized that the only way that any of us was going to get through it is if all of us 
got through it. So I'm really hopeful that that mentality and that the last year and the experience and the success of getting the Save Our Stages Act or the Shuttered Venues Operator Grant will really lead to a new path forward for independence, you know, because as small businesses, like our, they're businesses, but they're also our whole life. Um, and so that kind of attitude of like, this is our whole life. This is what we give to the world. Hopefully that can continue. And the fact that we were able to save stages, we can move on to strengthening stages and get back to live music very, very soon. Dana Frank, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And we're done. Big thanks for listening to my producers, Naomi Shaven, Sabina Singani, and Alex Sugiara. Please be sure to leave us a review. And if you're not already subscribing or following the podcast, do so. Have a great national blueberry cheesecake day and happy birthday to Sabina. We'll be back tomorrow with another Axios recap.